You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Ben Horowitz, co-founder and general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. I'm pleased to be in conversation with my friend Reed Hastings. Many of you know Reed as the co-founder, CEO, and chair of Netflix. He is here to discuss his new book, No Rules, Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. So let's get into it. Um, Reed, so first of all, I'd like to thank you for writing this book because I get uh, asked to recommend business books a lot, and um, I'm usually dumbfounded and people think that I'm illiterate because I don't read, but it's mostly I don't like many of the business books that I do read, uh, but I really like this one. And one of the reasons I really liked it um, is you kind of start from that honest place, which is where most of us learn management lessons, which is kind of that place of failure. I screwed it up and now I need to figure it out. Um, and that, that's almost how I've learned everything I know in management. And you did that at uh, your prior company, Pure Software, which you wanted, needed reinvention, <laughs> um, but couldn't. And so can you tell us about that and kind of how that led to this set of ideas? Ben, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. For the listeners who don't know, uh, ben is one of the foremost thinkers uh, on culture, is himself uh, an incredible author. And, you know, this stuff's hard and subtle, and I, I so look forward to the discussion. So you asked about learning from failure. I mean, I think every leader learns partially from failure of their own and partially from reading and experience. And if you can learn more from other people's errors and then make new and fresh ones, that's probably a positive outcome. So I don't want to celebrate too much learning from your own errors because, again, <laughs> it's, it's great to build on the errors of others, you know, and, and, yeah. and make fresh ones yourself. Yes, yes, no doubt. Um, but kind of what, what were the things that you ran into at Pure that, you, yeah. that kept you from being able to reinvent so I was a, a first-time uh, manager. Uh, I had invented the first product, Purify, which was a C-debugging tool. And um, so it was, you know, as an inexperienced CEO would be an understatement. In, that manifested itself in several ways. But one in particular was every time something went wrong, I didn't want that to go, uh, go wrong again. Mm -hmm. um, which is typically how an engineer approaches a problem. So right. if you find an error in software, you try to build a regression suite uh, or test for it that runs to make sure that that error doesn't come back. Right. And that's, you know, good design and good engineering. So, you know, I view the organization as a big software puzzle, which I know is laughably simplistic, um, but that's yeah. how I viewed it. <laughs> and uh, every time there was an error, um, we put a process in place to make sure that error didn't happen. And indeed, generally, that particular error didn't happen. But what I missed was what's the cultural effects of that uh, year after year? Mm -hmm. And the cultural effect was that, you know, the people who prospered were the people who could develop and follow process well. And that was the value system. And if you followed the process well, you were rewarded in all kinds of ways. And over time, it slowly drove out the kind of creative mavericks who didn't really want to deal with all that crap. 
And the subtle thing is in the short term, the business ran better, not worse, because yeah. it was, you know, very highly optimized. And so there was no negative feedback really about it. And then the market shifted. In that case, it was C++ to Java, but the details don't really matter. Right. And, you know, we were unable to adapt. We ended up buying a bunch of companies to try to have new products for our sales force because we weren't coming up with them ourselves. I guess, you know, all the core signs. And then to do more acquisitions, you know, it gets more complex because you got this other company full of process. Uh, and eventually we drowned. And so I think of it process is it all feels good, um, but it builds up like barnacles uh, on a boat. And if you don't, uh, every now and then with a boat, scrape off the barnacles, then eventually a storm comes and it sinks the boat. <laughs> and so you just, you know, we always think about it as going in a little like technical debt, another software right, metaphor, right, right, right. Um, but you got to go in and, and scrape the barnacles um, and really try to get rid of process. And this is why, you know, because I failed in that way in the past, I at least yeah. want to fail in a novel way this time. <laughs> and so All new mistakes. Push, that's it, you know. So we're pushing super hard into employee freedom, pushing the, the anti-process orientation, um, you know, as hard as we can. Yeah, and to an amazing level. And, and why, um, why write this book now? And then uh, you also had a co-author, which I thought was interesting. And it wasn't like the normal co-author ghostwriter. It was almost like a co-author. Well, what's Reed saying? Yeah, that part's true. I was wondering about this part, that kind of thing. Why that approach? Well, your book's exempted. I have read way too many CEO pontification books <laughs> where the CEO says how great things are and the way they work. And I always wonder... What's the reality? You know, what's really happening in that company? And now and then I've got friends who work there and I can get a bead on it. Uh, and it's almost never what the CEO thinks. And of course, I knew that would be true at Netflix too. So I thought, well, let, let me get someone really independent um, who's a business school professor, you know, has their own mm -hmm. reputation and give them open access to Netflix. They can interview anyone and everyone and report to the reader you know, this is the reality. So the book is me pontificating, mm -hmm. going through yes. the theory, which you can, yeah, I like doing. Um, and then uh, Aaron really saying, well, this is, you know, her observations from dealing with all the employees of the reality. And she had formerly written an incredible book called Culture Map, yeah. which is about national cultures within a corporation. So if you're a global company and you have a lot of Koreans and Germans and Brazilians and Dutch and English Japanese. and Americans, <laughs> and you're wondering, Japanese, yeah. why are they misunderstanding each other? Um, then to read her book, Culture Map, is incredible. Mm -hmm. So I knew she had good insight about culture. And did you did you end up learning things about Netflix? You know, in addition, like book aside, like just about Netflix, where you were, where she was like, "Well, that doesn't make sense." Reading, you were like, "Wow, that doesn't make sense." Or how how did that process go with regards to actually running the company? Yeah, as you would expect, if you have a good you know anthropologist spend a lot of time with a hundred <laughs> yeah. people, you pick up things and. 
you know, not that they're uh, completely new, but the relative weighting, you know, how they felt. Right. The fact that we felt like and feel like such an American company, like I had thought, oh, we're really doing well and becoming pretty global, um, you know, and uh, our Korean or our, you know, Dutch employees are like, wow, this is a super American company. Worse, Californian company. Um, so we still have a ways to go to get to, you know, the holy grail where everyone feels they have an equal chance to thrive, you know, whether you're an employee for us in, in Mexico City or in Mumbai. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. So we've been talking about culture, but culture means a lot of different things to, to a lot of different people. It's a very overloaded word. So when you talk, speak of culture in the context of Netflix, what do you mean there? I think company culture is the behaviors that get you promoted or get you let go. So everyone, when they go into a company, has to figure out what's the real culture, right? What are the values and behaviors uh, that are rewarded and which ones are violations? And sometimes there's a written culture and sometimes companies follow that written culture. Other times there's a written culture like Enron, you know, famously had, uh, you know, respect, integrity, you know, <laughs> as, as two of their four big words. Yeah. But there wasn't actually what got people promoted. What got them promoted was trading right. profits. And, you know, then people cut corners uh, to do that. And eventually the company blew up. So, you know, in any company, the, the real culture is, again, shown by who gets uh, rewarded and who gets pushed out. Right, right. And and it's really interesting in that context that you don't, when you describe the Netflix culture, you do it in a very different way than we're used to seeing in books, which it's usually a written culture is about starts with these values and integrity and, and, and so forth. But you more describe it as a system. And there are these pillars in the system, candor, talent density, and rule removal, I guess, is <laughs> you know, getting rid of rules. And they're sort of interdependent. And then you also kind of speak of layering them. So you, 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 know, you start with a talent density concept, and then you add a little candor, and then you remove a little rules, and then you kind of recycle through the thing again, you know, increase your talent density, uh, kind of increase the amount of feedback people get, and then you can remove more rules. So maybe you could describe that and why you have this sort of interdependent systems view of culture that's, that's so different th than the way it's ordinarily described. Well, let's separate two things. So there's um, uh, what our culture is, and then there's if you want to go in this direction, here are some ways to go about it. Right. Okay. Now, what our culture is, I think you're right, is we try to describe precisely behaviors that are rewarded. Mm -hmm. um, and that managers can be held accountable for that. You know, it's an employee bill of rights in a way. Okay. Right. That's in our culture memo. And this I picked up from uh, Jack Welch's book winning uh, mm -hmm. and it's in chapter three and it, in a book that generally isn't like chapter three is brilliant. Yeah. yeah, okay? yeah because he, he does pontificate a lot. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he describes um, that in the past he put, you know, generalities, you know, integrity, communication, but it's like those are not near specific enough. And he's like, you know, it's much different than that. And now I'm much more long form and specific uh, about, um, you know, how to approach business problems and how to grow a great business. 
um, which is going to be unique for, for each company. But if you look at the, you can Google Netflix culture and read the current memo and you can read the 10 behaviors there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, that forms two ways. One is it's us saying to new employees what we want, which again mm-hmm. helps uh, people select in or select out. Um, but it's also a sort of bill of rights that an employee is entitled to see those behaviors rewarded or not. And if they see that management is inconsistent um, and, you know, we're not perfect yeah. uh, compared to those values, it gives them something to, to refer to and to call us to account. Okay, so that's about what our culture is. Then there's the question you brought up, this sort of spiral notion of, you know, do a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really Aaron's innovation to, as a book device to basically help people build confidence because it's pretty hard to go from most cultures with a lot of process to the next week, no process and no mm-hmm. rules. And yeah. that's kind of chaotic. So, yeah. so she's, we're going with a connect the dots to a, a a possibility um, to sort of build confidence, to do a little mm-hmm. bit. And so we sat and thought through, you know, if someone wants to adjust their culture, here's a way to go about it. Okay. Right, yeah. Which if so you're a startup, you don't need them. Okay. Right, right. That's right. So it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism or it's our best guess mm-hmm. on the way an existing company um, can absorb uh, the set of ideas if they want to. Okay. Yeah, that, 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 that's, you, uh, you know, we're all flawed human beings, including bosses. I guess, how does that work in that, um, you know, from an incentive, because you want to incent, that's the behavior you want, but often like a boss will not reward that necessarily. And how does that end up working inside of Netflix so that you don't kind of end up with a hypocritical culture where somebody challenges the boss and is punished for that? Uh, well, certainly, if they're punished for that, that's going to end all feedback. Um, but m- even more strongly, because it's anti-normality to criticize the boss um, and in a way dangerous, uh, the boss has to go out of their way to farm for dissent. Um, what could I be doing better? Uh, I'll do an exercise with our executives. If you were CEO, mm-hmm. what would be different at Netflix? Um, and they have to list and sort through the top three things that would be different. And, you know, that could be uh, we'd be in China where we're not, or it could be we, you know, be in sports, or it could be uh, we would pay higher or lower, or it could be, you know, as trivial as uh, we'd have better food. I don't know. You know, it could be yeah. whatever the things are that, that forces them to say, what would, if I were CEO, what would be different? Okay, so that's one exercise in farming for dissent. Right. And then there's when you're lucky to get feedback, then I'll laud the person often publicly with their permission. You know, person X told me this, you know, that was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a hard piece of feedback, but, but it's fair. And so it's giving them psychic rewards where other people think, oh, that person was gutsy, you know, and, and did that. So at multiple levels, you want to overcome um, people's reticence yeah. Um, to provide useful feedback uh, to to power figures. And so how, that's such a great question, by the way, you know, how would you run Netflix if you were in my seat? You know, how are you, it's just such a great question to get people to speak up on things that would otherwise seem very dangerous. With the managers, how do you get them to ask, because 
you know, you're asking a question where you, in a, some way, emotionally, at least, you don't want to know the answer. <laughs> um, and so how does, you know, how, how does that training work? Or how do they take, you know, does, is that a difficult thing well, to get yeah, them to do? Or is it? It's generally easy to get them to critique pricing strategy or something that's economic. Right. And it's harder to get them to say, uh, well, if I were CEO, we would have a more empathetic CEO. Um, <laughs> you know, in other words, sort of personal characteristics. So think of it as there's, there's things that are sort of, I don't know, product, economic, you know, mm-hmm. we'd have more films or less TV that are, are not personal critiques. So then when you get a personal critique, think of it, you know, again, for me at least, even though I've accomplished mm-hmm. all these things, when someone, you know, that I respect, one of our executives in particular gives me feedback that's not positive, it hurts. I'm like, oh my God, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm defensive and I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand, you know, and then I have to stop myself and remember, you know, getting feedback in the pain is like doing crunches or push-ups mm-hmm. and, you know, you want to stop, you know, it hurts. Yeah. And you, you know that it's the painful ones that make you stronger. Okay. Yes. And Ray Dalio talks a bunch about this. You know, if you contain your ego and if you can take the pain, mm-hmm. um, you'll get stronger and you'll get better, you know, as a leader. And so then instead of, instead of arguing with a person, I'll say, tell me more about that. And what else? Tell me more. What else? And, you know, just keep hitting those two. Tell me more. What else? <laughs> and you know, it'll be amazing what comes out. You know, and then I'm like, oh my god, it really hurts. But again, <laughs> no pain, no gain. You know, that's what makes you better. Yeah. And you know, to play on the exercise metaphor, you know, if you're a trainer for someone and you mm-hmm. beat them, that's not helpful. Okay, right. so right. you know, we always want the feedback to be constructive. Okay, mm-hmm. we think of it as yes, we want honesty and candor but not like your drunken self, you know, spouting off, you know, random things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, you can say, uh, you know, I'm being honest and I say, Ben, I'm really attracted to you. Okay. Yeah. And in a professional setting, while that may be true, it's totally inappropriate. <laughs> yes. Okay. Totally so think of it as, although I appreciate it, candor, you, say it to you me. know, what we, <laughs> what we mean is professional, helpful, you know, can be direct. It can still hurt. Okay. Yeah. But it's within the bounds of the professional self. You know, it's not uh, critiquing or sharing other things that you might or might not think. Um, but I'll call that your drunk self. Okay. Yeah. So it's keeping that stuff to the side. It's, it's not unleashing that, you know, it's, but it's making your professional self, you know, much more open. Another thing we say is don't say something about a colleague that you haven't or won't say to them. Uh, so um, yeah. like if, if you, yeah. And so if, if you were working at Netflix at any level and you come to me and you say, uh, you know, Ted Sarandos, my co-CEO, you know, he's got this, this and that problem. And then I say, well, that's interesting. You know, what did he say when you told him that? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they look at me all frozen. Well, I can't tell them that. And I'm like, yes, you can, you know, and, you know, that's the first line. So if when people, you know, are talking about other colleagues, which is normal and fine, you know, just keep pressing them with, well, and what did they say, you know, when you asked them about that? Um, and that stimulates that directness. Yeah, now that's a great, you know, a great thing in the culture because that that passive 
what what ends up being passive aggressiveness is where a lot of the you know kind of politics and weirdness comes in every culture. Um, actually, on the feedback thing though, uh, you had a great kind of uh, anecdote in the book about what that meant when you took it to Japan, which is not like which has a very kind of pronounced country culture that isn't really that compatible with just plain directness in the way that you talk about. So tell us about a little bit about how you kind of got, what the problem was and how you got past that. Sure. Um, Japanese as an island culture and a very cohesive homogeneous culture has developed a high art form of uh, giving feedback very indirectly. And they call it reading the air. Okay, and so if we're both Japanese, um, without saying anything inappropriate verbally, I can give you a bunch of feedback and you're very confident you got the message. So think of it as a high art form. Um, and then when interacting with Americans, you know, we don't know that art form. And so they'll say something and we're supposed to interpret it as no way or yes, or I wish you did this differently or that. And we right. completely <laughs> miss it because we don't know how to care and they don't know that we can't. Okay. So it's definitely a big challenge. And so, and then that's one. And then two, sort of the Confucian cultures um, have high deference to elders. Mm, yes. And so, um, you know, uh, critiquing anyone in power is doubly hard. And then, you know, related to the uh, reading the air, if they do critiques in public, that's like triply hard. You know, I, I say to our Americans, look, for a Japanese to receive criticism in public would be like you yelling at them in American culture, okay? Where it's like really emotionally charged, okay? And, and they interpret it that way. So what we have to do is help both sides understand each other. And, you know, that's where the Aaron's Culture Map book is so good. Yeah. And we try to give, we say, look, we, we are going to standardize on English um, because it takes too long for the rest of the world to learn Japanese and standardize on that. Okay, and we do need one language to communicate. Right. So in this dimension of giving feedback, we're going to go with the American-style verbal feedback because we can all learn that around the world. And so then what we try to do is give permission to our Japanese colleagues to do that, including, you know, doing these uh, 360 dinners, mm. uh, you know, where we have a, a dinner, you know, uh, with some wine and, and, and sake and everyone's talking. And then we all have to give feedback for each other and, and the wine doesn't they, bring out the drunk behavior <laughs> well that's a good point you do have to be careful on that dimension you know which is if someone were to be uncomfortable and drink too much it could go bad so i mean alcohol is such a tricky thing in corporations so. yes and in um, japan there's a whole culture around that as well of course okay so so assuming it's just a little bit of social uh drinking for those who want to that's not the key thing yes um and what you're trying to do there is role model the behavior Mm -hmm. um, so that they feel like it's acceptable. And whoever you pick first to go, if they set a good example, you know, that helps a lot. But, you know, this isn't really the topic of becoming global and when you've got employees from all over the world. Because I'll give you another example where we change the culture. Mm -hmm. So Americans form trust uh, by doing tasks. So if mm -hmm. you go in a meeting and you barely know another employee, but then you work on a project together and, and it's done well, then you have high trust because you trust their competence. Okay. Right. right. Um, and so we build uh, trust that way. And we see chit chat about, you know, kids and baseball teams and other things in a meeting as kind of inefficient. Like, can you get to the point? You know, Americans are very efficient. Sure. 
Brazilians um, are very much relationship builders. They want to take meals and really talk about family and society and religion and sports and all those things. And, and you know, then we'll do the work, you know, and we'll trust each other at work because we've got this basis. And mm -hmm. so um, they're different styles. What we realized is actually the Brazilian style is more efficient because if you've got a strong relationship with people, then you can give good feedback. Okay. You have that kind of emotional caring for each other. Mm -hmm. And so about five uh -huh. years ago, when we started doing a lot of work in Brazil, we realized, you know, we should really shift our culture. Um, to be more relationship oriented. And so like we'll open meetings and talk about, you know, uh, parents and kids and animals, sports and news and, you know, uh, and we'll spend five or 10, you know, five or 10% you know, time on that. And then, and then we'll get to the real topics or, on, or we'll do more meals and those kinds of things. So, so that's a case where I think, oh, yeah, that's where we've learned from the Brazilians. We want a consistent style around the world so that of, of expectations so that managers can, you know, uh, be on the same page. Right, right. And, and know that it's, I know it's coming from a good place because I already had the conversation with you about my kids and you remembered my kids. And so I know you like me, that whole kind of basis. That's really interesting. So that, that ends up being, you know, at this, uh, you know, at a high-performing high company, American company like Netflix, a key cultural element that you went out and, and grabbed. That's, that, that's a really great insight. That's right. The, the strength of the relationship allows the effectiveness of the, the feedback. Right. Um, and so the narrow inefficiency of taking that time turns out actually to be well worthwhile. Right. right. Now, we're diving into feedback, but we should back up maybe a, a little bit and sort of say, for both you and I, mm -hmm. we care about how do you create long-term franchises, companies that continue to innovate. And we've both been shocked at, you know, the fall of HP or Sun. I mean, you know, incredible. So, um, you know, we, we try to figure out what happens to these companies, you know, when there's rapid change. Okay. And the basic idea we have is that most companies over-optimize for efficiency, okay? They want to get so good at their current market that they lose flexibility to adjust to the future. And the non-intuitive thing is it's better to be managing chaotically, mm -hmm. okay, if that's productive and fertile. So think of the standard model as clean, efficient, sanitary, mm -hmm. sterile. Right. And our model is messy and chaotic and fertile. And in the long term, fertile will beat sterile. Okay. But in the short term, sterile is very good. Yes. Yes. So you have to be very conscious as a leader how you're optimizing for the long term. Okay. And long term innovation. Right. Second, manufacturing has dominated the economy for 200 years. And so there's a and, lot and of management thinking tech. that's based. Right, right. Our industry yes, is dominated absolutely. by manufacturing. Semiconductor yield. Yes, yes. And all the original maps. Absolutely. OKRs, KPIs, the whole philosophy. Yeah. Oh, my God. All the stuff around OKR. You know, exactly. Okay. It's, okay, it's perfect for managing semiconductors. <laughs> Okay, a, a yield, you know. Yes. Um, and so, what you want to really think about is there's this big influence for manufacturing because it's generated most of the economic wealth of the past couple hundred years, and that's around the boss and the worker. 
and the worker following the rules and you want zero variation. That's nirvana. Mm -hmm. And yet if you're an innovation culture, you innovation or variation is essential at core in innovation culture is around increasing variation Mm -hmm. And a manufacturing culture, Five Sigma, is around decreasing variation. Right, right. Now, in manufacturing and in safety, think of hospitals and airlines. You do. You want perfect process, full compliance. And that is the right way to manage those businesses, which are most of the economy. Mm-hmm. Then there's this creative sector which, you know, we're both in, um, and it includes like ad agencies. It's not just high tech, includes Hollywood, lots mm-hmm. of areas, okay? Most businesses, um, really. That really wants to be, uh, well, there's a part of most businesses, but again, I mean, airlines, restaurants, lots of things that are focused on consistency, right? You, you right. wouldn't manage, you, you're not trying to increase variation at McDonald's, right? You're trying <laughs> no. to standardize, except at the, the, the labs level, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we just have to think as managers, we've inherited a cultural legacy that is highly optimized for manufacturing and safety, which is process, OKRs, you know, all these ideas that we can manage creativity, when in fact, we really need to create a fertile ecosystem and not try to manage it too much, okay? And yet not have it be chaotic. Right. And, right. and you know, what we hope is that in 20 years, uh, our book will be totally obsolete. It'll be like the HP way. Like, okay, that was good, but you know, in its day, okay? Yeah. But we have gone so far beyond in how to support human creativity and innovation on a sustained basis. So there just hasn't been enough thinking about what's unique about creative companies. Because for creative companies, the fundamental risk is mm-hmm. lack of innovation. It's right. not... Uh, execution and efficiency, okay? And those are different types. But again, many businesses, it is about efficiency, bringing costs down, those kinds of manufacturing things. But for creative businesses, it's really, are you organized for innovation? So that's the big context in which we're trying to make a contribution around what would you do to optimize creativity? I mean, we think that's around employee freedom, which is supported by the no rules and the context, other people have other ideas, but again, it's it's really about how do you have a company that keeps able to uh, do new invention. So let's take Amazon, an mm-hmm. incredible company, done amazing amounts of innovation, arguably <clears throat> more than Netflix. Okay, and they're they're um, not nearly as much uh, as we are about freedom and no rules, but they're about the two pizza lunches, and they're so willing yeah. to fail. The fact that right. they can do like that whole mobile phone and disaster and, you know, and then once in a while they proud have an Alexa <laughs> and it like changes the world. Yeah, no, disaster so, and exactly. proud of it. That, so, that's amazing. You know, so I would say there's multiple ways to crack this innovation thing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I would look forward to Jeff Bezos's equivalent of, of our book. which is how do you manage for innovation because he's very thoughtful about it. And over time, the innovation sector, we'll see there's a couple of different approaches and what's the way to combine them. Yes, yes. And yours is very interesting because it's so at its core a cultural approach. Whereas if if you, you know, when I think about when Jeff Bezos talks about it, he goes into, you know, what you said, willingness to take very high risks and re, but it's a, it gets back to a cultural thing, which is, is that rewarded in the culture 
for taking that high risk or is it punished when you fail? And he's very thoughtful about how you reward it. So it gets back into the, your original comment, which is about, okay, what are the actual incentives for employees in the company on their behavior? And that's going to lead to creativity or kind of efficiency, so to speak. Google's a fascinating one because, of course, 10 years ago, they were all about 20% time. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, you know, that's kind of like all gone. And the question is, what did they learn? You know, it's pretty hard to do innovation on one day a week. And the big innovations they did are, are things like Android, you know, and, you know, Google Drive and Google Docs and massive projects. Massive. So I, I'm guessing that they probably learned that, hey, at Google, the way we innovate is we can put hundreds of people on big ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's no longer, you know, uh, part-time innovation that matters. I'm, I'm guessing, but uh, maybe you have a reflection on that. Yeah, no, I think that's the thing that struck me about your book that was so different than Google's approach is Google's approach always seemed to me to be this very super courageous but top-down set of ideas. So we're going to, we want to build an autonomous car and we're going to put unlimited money for unlimited years into that. And that's like, it's an amazing thing to do, but your ideas is almost the opposite, which is look, we've got all these creative people here. And if we get rid of the rules that constrain their thinking, they will come up with the innovation and like, there won't be any rule against them continuing with that innovation and building it. There's nobody who's going to say no. Um, because we don't have any rules. <laughs> and not that simple, but kind and, of. Yeah, so in, 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 in that way, we, Netflix and Amazon are closer, mm-hmm. yes. uh, you know, to those bottoms up kind of thing. But, you know, Amazon has more lines of business. I mean, we're still basically a, a one service company. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're yeah. earlier in the phase. In Google terms, it'd be like if we only had search. Right, right. 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 And we're, we're, we're bubbling up ideas about how to improve search or how to improve our service. Mm-hmm. But again, right. I would say that uh, Google and Amazon and Microsoft, they're, you know, well ahead of us in, um, you know, taking on multiple areas. And our area is so big, entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, it is really just colossal that we're going to be working on this one enormous problem on a global, I say problem, opportunity, one enormous service, you know, for many, many years ahead. Right. But you did you did run into at Netflix a kind of very important turning point where if you had continued to optimize the DVD business um, instead of getting to the streaming business, you would have had a huge problem. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that because you also kind of screwed it up. And somewhat, I remember you saying, somewhat thanks to my uh, business partner, Mark Andreessen, who was very much on get rid of, you know, just eject DVDs and go into the future. So maybe you could tell us about that transition. Yeah, I mean, there's just uh, marvelous uh, learnings in that. But uh, let's get to that in a second. What I would say about market is typically you guys, venture capitalists, say you want to go after the largest market possible. And I've always thought that's crazy because you can't defend it. Okay. And so I've always thought you want to go after the smallest market possible that can hold your five to 10 year growth ambitions. Hmm. Right. So narrowest target. Yes. And again, if it's the left-handed scissors market, it's too narrow. Okay. And so the practical thing on how big it is, is can it hold five or 10 years of growth? 
Right. Right. So back to DVD, by the time we got to uh, 2005, we realized, okay, DVD is probably going to peak about 2010. So it no longer can hold our five or 10 year growth ambitions. So then we've got to be figuring out how to expand the market definition. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we said, okay, we've got to, ex- now's the time we've got to expand into streaming. So 2007, uh, YouTube had just started. Google just bought it in the beginning of 2007. Um, Hulu started. Um, Amazon did a thing called Unbox, which was their uh, internet delivery on, on yeah. video. And Netflix started streaming. So all four of us entered basically in 07. Yeah. And um, since then, it's been a rocket ship as people realized, okay. Yeah, and for multiple companies, rocket ship. Yes, that's right. All, all, all of us uh, with, with huge growth. I mean, yeah. YouTube, uh, by far the biggest viewing growth. Um, but, uh, but all of us, with, with, it was a big enough market. There was a, mm-hmm. you know, a play there. Hulu was doing really well. It was owned by three of the major media companies. And to some degree, uh, they were positioning of, if you care about DVD and streaming, Netflix is okay. But if you really care about streaming, Hulu is the solution. <laughs> right, right. And our marketing played into this because the easiest way to differentiate against Hulu was, well, we have DVDs too. Mm. Okay. Yep. Yep. And the problem is that was going to be a fading value to consumers. Mm-hmm. So you really, we had to say to our marketers, you can't talk about it. We've got to strip it away because you're going to make us dependent on a thing that's going to become irrelevant. And we have to be full stop the best streaming service and to win on that basis. Right. And that, in fact, we had to um, separate the basically have DVD and streaming be separate so that streaming had to fight and win and be better than Hulu as a streaming service. So uh, partially goaded by the, the uh, wonderfully radical Mark Andreessen, who is like, burn the boats, you know, uh, but I don't blame him at all. It's, it's all on me, um, is we came up with this plan, uh, which was to separate uh, DVD and streaming. Yeah. And we made one tragic, I made one tragic mistake in it, which is the pricing for the combined plan had been $10. Mm-hmm. And the separate plans, we said, should be $8 for streaming, which is about Hulu's price, and about $8 for DVD. So, uh, so um, it was effectively a 60% price increase. So yeah. we sent an email, I sent an email to 20 million American families. So 20% of American society oh uh, on one day saying oh the price is going up by 20% or 60%. And you get to use two services, two websites instead yeah. of one. So less convenience, radically higher price in the middle of a recession. And no new features. Okay, so... <laughs> It did no new features, so it did not go well. Okay, and I explained it as this is essential for Netflix's long term, which it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The customers <laughs> that you're about that. Yeah, they don't care about you. So, oh my gosh, it was it was crazy yeah. bad. So, um, and you know the stock went down seventy five percent. Lots of members quit. You know the brand uh, Saturday Night Live did skits making fun of us. I mean, it was like you know nightmarish. <laughs> And so we realized that uh, this was going to be a challenge to get out of, and we slowly earned back the trust uh, of customers. And today, you know, we, we, you know, basically switched it from Quickster 
to dvd.com. So now if you go to dvd.com, that's our DVD service. We have a little under 2 million members that are still DVD subscribers. Wow. We have nearly 200 million who are streaming. So, you know, we were right to separate them. Okay. Yes. It's yeah. just, we did it an awful way. And yeah. we, so think of it as we did the thing that Kodak never did. We did the thing that AOL never did. We did mm -hmm. the thing that Blockbuster never did, which is we did transition our business successfully, but yeah. we did not stick the landing. Okay. <laughs> you know, we, we landed ugly. Let's just say that. I was going to say one of the things that you talk about in the book on that is the knowledge to stick it correctly was in the company, but you just didn't listen to it. And so maybe you talk about That's that. That's what I was getting to. Okay. So afterwards, we, we, you know, we first had to heal. That took six months or a year because it was just crisis, right? Of we, you know, what are we going to cut? How are we going to survive? You know, our, our general counsel joked about he had worked at Wedband. So he goes, at least I've got bankruptcy skills. I mean, it was like gallows humor. Okay. So, um, you know, afterwards we said, okay, what went wrong? Well, the first level answer is arrogant CEO who doesn't listen to his people, sort of King Lear, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that motif. Okay. And for the most part, that's not what happened. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what happened was something more subtle, which is uh, our leading people uh, were too deferential. Mm -hmm. They were like, Reed's been right so many times. I think this is going to be bad, but he must see something. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're just going to run with it, yeah. you know? Okay. And they didn't know that each other kind of all felt the same. Yeah. And in hindsight is if we had said uh, all execs, you know, uh, write down, um, you know, what's your level of confidence of this move, you know, disaster to, you know, genius, right. You know, it would have come up 20 people thinking it's going to be bad. <laughs> and then that's the strength of the co-feeling would have realized, no, we're right. Reed is wrong. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, and, and probably would have stopped. And so the key thing there we said is in the future, all major decisions, we've got to have everybody write down. Um, what they think, you know, positive 10 to negative 10 mm -hmm. and, um, and why. Okay. And we just do that in a Google sheet, you know, but any mm -hmm. shared medium is fine. Um, and then everyone knows what everyone else thinks and you got to put it down in writing. So, you know, that little device then has helped us avoid chaos and catastrophe in the future, you know, which is great. But anyway, that's the quickster story. Or yeah, that's, a, that's such a great device because, you know, it's always, it's very deceiving when you're CEO because it's at the point when you kind of are right consistently and feeling confident that you cause that problem. So it's right at the point when you're doing the best that um, people get too much faith in you. Uh, I think I should go to the audience questions because I will ask you questions all day and that would be very unfair. So... Here are some from the audience. Can you talk about your recent personal donation, actually historic donation to historically black colleges, universities, and the Negro College Fund? And, you know, how are you Good. and Netflix thinking about that? The average black family in America has about one-tenth of the wealth, um, 17,000 versus 170,000. And that's a result of slavery, uh, Jim Crow, and housing redlining. Housing's the main asset that white families have. 
And so until we close that economic wealth gap, um, we're not going to close the power gap. Uh, we're not going to close the access gap. So for me, it's about closing the economic gap. So one part of that is that um, black students graduate with more debt out of college than white students. And so um, Robert Smith uh, shined a big light on this with with his amazing um, college donation. We want to do something like that. Ours uh, was a donation to Spelman and and Morehouse and uh, United Negro College Fund. And that was for scholarships so that there's less debt for students emerging um, from those schools. Uh, and secondarily, I used to look at the historically black colleges and universities as an anachronism. In other words, when I grew up, the whole integration was the dream. And, right. you know, uh, it's about, um, you know, getting amazing black scholars into Stanford and Harvard and, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're doing that. That's good, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the historically black colleges and universities have played an incredible role. They supply about 25% of the doctors, lawyers, mm-hmm. and engineers in America, partially because it's such an incredible environment and affirming environment for them where everywhere they look, there's incredible black talent from all over the world in the schools and it forms a very positive experience. So it was also for me a realization that because we have social isolation to a large degree, unfortunately, we also have capital isolation. And people like me tend to give to our alma maters. And I gave a bunch of money to Bowdoin College, tiny little great place in Maine, as white as you can get. Um, Did you do better for first-gen kids? and? Mm. A very friendly place um, and, and sincere making efforts. Uh, and that's when, you know, a, a friend of mine who runs United Negro College Fund pointed out that capital isolation. And so he's the one, Dr. Michael Lomax, who got me to start visiting Spelman and Morehouse and to really learn a little more and to start to build bridges. And so we've been donors for a couple of years before um, this, this COVID crisis and then, well, COVID and George Floyd. And, you know, post George Floyd, we wanted to do something big to really endorse the HBCUs, a lower student debt. So that's the personal story. And then Netflix, um, you know, one of our uh, leading black directors realized that black banks are, of course, undercapitalized, the same basic historic reasons. And so loans to black businesses and black families are, are less. And that if companies like Netflix just put 1% of their cash and deposited that instead of putting it all in JP Morgan, but put 1% of the cash into black banks, then those black, those black banks can then make bigger loans um, to uh, black businesses, black families, and also contribute to reducing the wealth gap. So we're hopeful that many companies will think about putting 1% into black banks Already, Costco did a huge thing, put $25 million into to black banks. Um, and, you know, that's remarkably fast. And others, I know, are thinking about it. So I think that's, you know, a pragmatic, uh, it's not going to change everything, but it's like a small gesture that corporate America can make. And, you know, moving it from one bank to another <clears throat> is not a big deal. So it's an easy <laughs> yeah, corporate yeah. gesture that will help on on closing uh, the wealth gaps uh, between black families in America and white families. Oh, well, that's great. That was a long answer to a good question. <laughs> no, it's a good question. And, and we all appreciate you doing that. Kind of, and I mean, these are audience questions, so we're gonna change gears a lot. So get ready. 
how do you look for the balance between process and freedom to innovate slash improve? Um, I'm not sure if I totally understand the question, but um, I think they're getting at, you know, can you really do away with all these processes? You know, we, we, we don't really do away with all of them. Like we have, uh, you know, a biweekly management meeting. That's a process. Yes. Okay, it's not we don't just get together when anybody wants. Okay, we have a quarterly get together with all the top people to think about like new ideas. So we where process supports more innovation, we're all for it. Okay, and that's typically around meeting schedules, having organized presentations, so that that's not ad hoc. Um, so that would be an example of where process enables us to get more done. That's the good process. Mm -hmm. The bad process is error inhibition process. Let's go through this process to make sure it's not a mistake. So those are the ones we try to get rid of. And, and the ones we try to build up are the ones that provide a platform for us, uh, you know, to be, to support innovation. Actually kind of a follow-up question on that. When you think, if a business was in like a dogfight competitive battle in its current market, would you then, would you still kind of drive for innovation if it was a company like Netflix or would you need to optimize more? Yeah, probably a little more optimized. Um, when we were in the DVD fight uh, with Blockbuster, this is um, 05 to uh, 07, we got distracted um, doing, you know, magic charms. So uh, we did four things to make ourselves feel better. We went into selling used DVDs directly on our website rather than on eBay. We started buying some uh, little films at Sundance, like a Maggie Gyllenhaal film and some other films because this was 2005 original content. Uh, we launched a private social network called Netflix Friends that was like the Apple ping kind of thing. But my, and this was 2005 was Facebook was barely out of Harvard. Right. Mm, and we yes. were doing, you know, you can see each other's queue and viewing history. If you give each other permissions and we said, let's sell banner advertising on our website, like Overstock used to do. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, non-trivial engineering efforts, because this is the way we're going to differentiate against Blockbuster. Uh, fortunately, we also spent some time on getting shipping more reliable so that, you know, our queue fulfillment rate went from 96% to 98%. Uh, and in the end, once we beat Blockbuster, we realized the only thing that mattered was that queue fulfillment rate, that <laughs> 96 to 98%. So little innovations then. And we well. as leaders, that's right. And we as leaders did not have the courage to stand before the employees and say, we're going to win because we can move this from 96 to 98%. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we needed these little magic charms to make ourselves feel good. And it was totally bad management to get distracted on those magic charms. <laughs> so, you know, having the confidence to focus on the basics and doing the basics incredibly well is important. And then that lesson, which is more of a business strategy lesson than a culture lesson. So that's why it's right. not in the book. Yeah. But that lesson is what's fueled our focus. Um, you know, it, uh, really focusing on movies and series and not also doing sports and video game and user generated and all kinds of other things. Right. Take on. Um, right. Is, and, uh, yeah. Avoid, 
And so, um, you know, we're, so it's always a balance, I guess I would say when you're in that dog fight, it's, you better win the dog fight first and then you yeah. can invent the new airplane. <laughs> right. With, without tactics, sometimes there's no strategy. How should companies prioritize external feedback? For example, those criticizing Facebook <laughs> or other tech companies for not doing enough to hold themselves accountable. And you don't have to comment on Facebook, of course, which you used to be on the board of. You know, I, I would say every new technology has uh, a lot of benefits and uh, some some costs, and sometimes they're horrible costs. So if you think about the automobile, you know, tremendous freedom that it brought about in prosperity, but it killed more than 50,000 people a year for the last 50 years, okay, just in the United States. Yeah, and that doesn't include so, the climate change issues, right? It doesn't include climate change. That's just like direct automobile death, okay? Yeah. And so, you know, just recognize that it's not a novel thing that a new technology has unintended and bad consequences that we have to deal with. And we're dealing with it faster than we dealt with automobiles, mm -hmm. um, both at the climate change level and at the safety level. And there does need to be that. And, and you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, they all know that we need thoughtful regulation, but, you know, we also want free speech and those are hard challenges. So um, a lot needs to be done and I'm glad it's happening. When you think of Netflix culture, what parts do you consider to be timeless, evergreen relative to the parts you see as open to evolution as you enter new markets and evolve the business? It's all open to evolution. Uh, none of it is golden tablets. Yes. You know, we're constantly trying to improve the culture. One of the key things is that most people have the default idea that as you get bigger, you start sucking. You know, it gets political, it gets bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. So if you want to affect the world at scale, you want to grow. And you're making a choice not to be like a boutique restaurant in your neighborhood where you're fantastic, but you don't change the world. Most of us take the trade-off, which is we're going to get bigger. That's harder because then we can have more impact in the world. And so it, the key thing is to get people to believe that it's possible to get better as you get bigger. And then you have to really show the examples of where we're getting better as we get bigger. Now, it is harder as you get bigger. But think of Malthus, who thought, you know, the whole world's going to starve once we get above a billion people, okay, yeah. you know, 250 years ago. Totally wrong. And what he didn't understand is that there are going to be a lot of people thinking about how to have increased food productivity mm -hmm. and that the number of people thinking about increased food productivity was going to ultimately outstrip the number of people. And that, in fact, you'd have less starvation than 250 years ago instead of more. So, again, he missed that. Now, as Netflix grows, we have more people thinking about how to improve the culture. So, mm -hmm. yes, it's harder but we got more brain power working on it and people are coming up with ideas. So, you know, a big example would be, you know, about four years ago, we added inclusion as a core value and we've been working hard on it and we've made real progress. And, you know, I wish that I had led that 10 years ago. Okay. But I didn't, I wish I had led it at all, but it was brought to me as something that, you know, really needed to be done. And, you know, I'm on board and we're driving it. Uh, but it's a real improvement because we've got more people thinking about it. And now of our top 20 leaders, 
Uh, we're half men, half women, so it's 50-50. Uh, we're 25% leaders of color of our top 20. Um, so, you know, we're doing a lot of great things, and, you know, we've still got plenty to grow and improve. Uh, but that's been a great improvement that was really, you know, I've been supportive of it, but it was really driven by all the new um, talent at Netflix. So really interesting. It is, um, you know, culture in particular, getting everybody to participate in a culture at scale uh, is probably the greatest management challenge there is. Final question, and you had such colorful answers to this in the Wall Street Journal. Um, how has COVID-19 impacted Netflix? Do you feel the company is in a better place to react to crises because of its cultural reinvention? You know, I love work from home. <clears throat> I've been doing uh, work from home my whole life, uh, nights and weekends. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, I think it's always a great part of the mix. Um, I like some in-person contact uh, to be able to build relationships and talk through difficult things. But um, work from home is, is fantastic. And so the key is, uh, I do think that uh, exclusive work from home where you're like, don't have any uh, in-person contact is not good, but work from home as part of the work experience is fantastic. And then um, is Netflix differentially uh, able to adapt? Uh, maybe, but I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, Disney and Amazon and those ones are all working hard and it kind of doesn't matter because COVID fortunately is a once in hundred year phenomena. And so we're not trying to draw great cultural lessons from it. Instead, we're trying to think of the things that we'll need to be good at for five, 10, 20 years. So we're all making do. You see in the background, my son's old bedroom. I keep <laughs> thinking I should really do a nice office, but then I don't want to admit that this is gonna be a while. Yeah. And so month by month, I just tolerate this chaos. And I do hope that we'll have a vaccine soon. Um, that many people will get it and therefore that will eliminate COVID from society and we'll be back to normal, uh, you know, next year. So that will be a great day. And when we can do this interview live in the Commonwealth Club and have some fun. Yeah, that, that'll, that'll be a great day. Okay, thank you so much, Reed. Um, this has been super uh, entertaining and educational um, for me as well. Uh, so we all thank you. It is an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Uh, ranked voting. Um, ah. uh, right now, if we, uh, we vote, you know, yes or no on various people. Yeah. Uh, and if we did ranked voting where you say, what's your top choice, your next choice, your third choice, fourth choice? A, um, we can skip the primary step and go directly to a single election. Plus, uh, it drives to more centrist candidates because one by one, you cut the fringe votes until you get to the two most centered candidates. Um, so <clears throat> love to see ranked voting uh, succeed. That sounds like a, yes. <laughs> Getting rid of the super fringe power that we're moving towards would be really exciting. Um, okay, our thanks to Reed Hastings for joining us today. We encourage you to pick up the No Rules Rules at your local independent bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Ben Horwitz, and thank you for joining.